You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to another episode of the Revision Path Podcast. I'm Maurice Cherry. And there's a lot I want to cover before we get into this week's interview, which kicks off HBCU Month, our showcase on designers and developers from historically black colleges and universities. We are growing and expanding at a huge rate. We've joined forces with inspiring black designer Saida Mitchum. You might remember her from a few episodes ago. And she'll be joining Revision Path as a contributing editor, so make sure you check out the blog for her first post. She'll be writing a monthly column, and she'll also be overseeing our brand new directory of designers and developers. If you want to add your business to our directory, head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash directory and submit a listing. We've also got three interns joining Revision Path for the summer, Eric Huffman, Rashida Otumba, and Stephanie Philpot. You'll be seeing their work over the next few months, and I'm really, really glad to have them on board. This week's episode is brought to you by MailChimp, the premier email service provider for small businesses, freelancers, you name it. Sign up today for a free MailChimp account at MailChimp.com. MailChimp also has a lot of great resource guides to help get you on the right track if you're just starting out with email marketing. Highly, highly recommended. We're also sponsored by Audible, a great website where you can listen to over 150,000 downloadable audiobooks on your iPhone, Android, or MP3 player. Visit audibletrial.com forward slash revision path and get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook. If you happen to be taking any weekend getaways this month, Audible is perfect for that. I highly recommend checking out I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by the great Dr. Maya Angelou. Rest in peace. Again, just head over to audibletrial.com forward slash revision path and get that free trial and free audiobook. I know you'll love it. Now, on with the show. This week, I talked with Tori Hardgrove, manager of visual design for USA Today. Here we go. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. This is Tori Hargro. I am uh, a user experience and design director at USA Today in uh, McLean, Virginia. All right. So what exactly is user experience? I know that a lot of people sort of talk about web design and graphic design and how those sort of interplay as long with web development. How does user experience kind of go into the mix? Well, you know, user experience has had a had an interesting adoption rate in our business. It's something that didn't exist a few years ago as terminology, but something that a lot of companies are embracing right now. And I think the reason is because as the web has matured and as this and its content has grown significantly, people start to recognize that that your designers and your developers are not necessarily information architects or pros in heuristics or pros in user research. So uh, those skills are much more necessary with the complexity of the web today, of, of a modern internet. At USA Today, especially my focus, which is editorial content, less on the product side and more on the individual story side, when I say user experience, I'm really talking about a person who takes ownership of the digital experience of storytelling. So this is a person who maybe in a previous life was a producer or in a previous life may have been a multimedia journalist. They don't really do much coding or really any coding. Uh, they're primarily concerned with how readers or users will experience content online. And so whether that be on the user interface design and uh, wireframe side of things or on the heuristics user research 
side of things. The, it's all valuable, and we use um, pretty much that spectrum at USA Today, and, and those are some of my responsibilities. Now, is there a really big need to sort of bring that design and that UX experience into the news in terms of presentation? It's absolutely huge. What we're finding, as regular daily news becomes more of a commodity, news organizations are attempting to differentiate themselves in many ways. And, and most do that by voice. Voice is still the, the most important way you differentiate yourself from your competitors. But also uh, institutions like USA Today were founded on the principle of using design as one of those differentiators. One of the early ads for USA Today in the 80s said, USA Today, never gray. A direct stab at the New York Times, who at the time had just rows and rows of gray type in, in the news. So uh, from a print standpoint, they've always been about short, chunky, easy to get through, easy to navigate content. And so uh, for us online, we try and accomplish the same thing. We want the stories that we tell not to be infinite scrolls of information, but instead we want people to be able to get through the experience. And whether they spend two minutes or whether they decide to spend 15 minutes, they feel like they got something valuable from the experience. So it's becoming critical to a news, modern news design uh, for web and mobile devices. All right. So you are from Mississippi originally. Is that right? Where in Mississippi are you from? I am from the Crooked Letter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am from a small town called Port Gibson, Mississippi, which in and of itself doesn't have a lot of fame. But some people, especially if you're a Civil War buff, have heard of Natchez, Mississippi or Vicksburg. A lot of important Civil War battles there. The bad news is when you're about, I'm about two hours to the uh, east of New Orleans. Okay. So right on the Mississippi-Louisiana border. Okay. All right. And you went to Alcorn State? I did. I went to Alcorn State University, uh, home of uh, Steve McNair, a uh, former Tennessee Titan quarterback. And prior to him, civil rights leader, Megger Evers, and Alex Haley as well. I uh, was a graduate of Alcorn State University. So, yeah, uh, great alma mater, great school in southwest Mississippi, uh, one of the oldest uh, HBCUs in America, and still producing a good uh, student body today. What did you study while you were there? So like most college kids, I bounced around quite a bit. I think I started off as an agriculture major. I, I don't know why. Agriculture? Uh, yeah, like agriculture. Like 4-H kind of stuff? Like 4-H kind of stuff, yeah. Actually, uh, Alcorn, like a lot of schools founded in the South at that time, were founded to teach freedmen and sharecroppers how to farm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that was the whole point of the education. And as this college, you know, as it went from Alcorn A&M to Alcorn College to then Alcorn State University, they continued that foundation of agriculture. So now, in fact, the USDA is, is one of the heaviest recruiters uh, on our campus. They get plenty of plenty of our graduates go to the USDA here in Washington, D.C. as employees. So, uh, yeah, it's a huge business there. So I kind of got drafted into that life for about a semester. And wow. I think it was the course coming up the next semester where I would have to castrate young pigs. I think that's what sent me <laughs> in a different direction. <laughs> you didn't want to castrate Babe. You didn't want to castrate I, Wilbur. Or yeah, or you, you know, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I love the bacon and all, but, you know, I genuinely didn't want to be hands-on right? In, in the truest sense. So, no. So I, I got out of that, and as I was looking around for something to do, I actually ended up landing in business administration. Our university has a very, Megger Evers, the civil rights leader, uh, majored in business at Alcorn. It's a, it's a well-known, well-respected program in that part of the state for, as an HBCU. And so I majored in business there. And uh, while I was there, I also founded my own business, uh, me and a college roommate of mine. 
started a, a web company. That was and uh, Next Verge Digital Media? That was Next Verge Digital Media. That's right. Okay. Our claim to fame is we thought of Facebook along with everybody else bef- 10 years <laughs> before Facebook. There was a, for people who were, have been on the web for a long time, even back in 99, there was a company out, young man out in uh, Texas, who, uh, whose name I can't remember. It was Rob something. But Rob started a network, a college network of getting people to uh, connect socially through HBCUs way back in 1999. It was called Dallas Peeps was the original uh, website. And uh, we saw that. We thought, wow, like if this was really academically focused, not just on universities or HBCUs or the black community, but to the larger academic institutions, this would be awesome. So we got as far as building a login page and we kind of like lost interest. So, so you know, that would have been nice had we got that right. But we did go on to to hire, um, actually, my dean of the School of Business was one of our first clients for his uh, nonprofit, which is very large, uh, academic nonprofit. And uh, from there, we redesigned the website for our, for, for Alcorn State University. Okay. So I, I was a young... Were, while you were attending school, you were... While I was attending school, I was a 19-year-old kid. Nice. And uh, they redesigned their website, so... Uh, even back then, I was very interested in the web and what it could do. Got super excited about HTML and code. So, and, uh, so you said you, had, you switched to business administration, and that's mm-hmm. what you got your degree in, was that? That's what I graduated in, yes. Okay, all right. So how did you go from business administration and you know taking into account, of course, the work that you did with the web, sort of doing technology in, in sort of more of a journalistic environment? How did that come to play? <laughs> Well, it was a really quick path, actually, because what happened, I graduated, or as I was graduating from Alcorn, I was in my junior year, and I got an offer from the dean of the mass communications department, which is what we called it at the time, to run our local radio station as their director of business development. So if you know anything about development work, they're the, you know, if you ever listen to NPR, they're the people who ask you to sign up and be a member. Mm-hmm. because they're trying to raise money for the nonprofit's entity that is, in our case, uh, our local radio station, which was an NPR station, by the way. So I agreed to take the job, so I started working full-time for the university and going to school part-time. And as I you know, continued to work there, I started to see that I was having trouble raising money for the station because they were having difficulty in the news operation. And so I kind of got a little more involved in the news operation, eventually produced a few shows, there in the news operation with the news with a new news director that they got there and really started to enjoy journalism in the news and then we NPR put out a grant saying that hey if your station is not online we're willing to pay a few thousand bucks to get you online and uh, you just you know let us know what you want to do so we applied for that grant through my role as a development officer but when it came time to execute who would actually take the lead in finding a vendor and working with that vendor to produce our, our website you know, everybody was on, I think it was six of us full time. So they looked at me and said, I had the most experience. So I uh, took the lead in transitioning that station online. And it's still a website they have today, WPRL.org in Lorman, Mississippi. But that was my first real experience outside of my freelance work, actually working in a business, working, being a point man for the web, being a webmaster, if you will, which is what we called it back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was my first entry into it. And just, you know, seeing that this is something that you could do for a living really excited me. The business side of things, you know, great. I have an acumen for that, but I'm not, doesn't excite me. Seeing the things I create online and knowing that millions of other people can see them too, that excited me. So that was my beginning. Nice, nice. And you've also worked with a couple of other media outlets, like you've done some work for the Orlando Sentinel. You Mm -hmm. were a Pointer Institute fellow, is that right? That's right. All of those sort of came 
after you did this work. Is that right? That's right. In fact, Pointer was really, really interesting because they called me up. To this day, I'm not sure how this happened. I was told that the gentleman who called Alcorn State University, he was looking for a student who knew web development, who was interested in news for a program that this organization called the Society for News Design was putting on to find young, and in my case, they were looking for particularly a minority web developers who also had an interest in journalism because they were already, news organizations were already starting to see that there was going to be a need for people in that area. So he says he just called the switchboard and said, hey, I'm looking for some journalism students who know code. And someone at the switchboard gave him my number. To this day, I don't know who they, I don't know who did that, don't know how they knew me. But I picked up the phone and he asked me about that the program. It was a competition in Orlando, Florida at, the, at their next conference. I hung up the phone, asked my boss if I could do it. She said yes. I applied since I was still a student. I was eligible. Went to Orlando, Florida with Society of News Design and participated in this kind of reality show before it was a reality show conference competition over two days to design news out to just design news and uh, did really well didn't win the competition but i impressed one of the uh, people at the pointer institute who was actually there to find people to take fellowships to their visual journalism program so i was a young african-american man who knew a little bit of, of html encoding who also had experience in journalism that was a little rare so they came up to me and asked me if I'd be interested, and I was. So I got accepted, applied, and got accepted to the Pointer Institute, which was an amazing experience. You're taught by Pulitzer Prize-winning photographers and writers for uh, about almost two months, all of the latest trends and ethics related to, to media and journalism. It was a really life-changing experience. And so I guess and, this is yeah. this is where you sort of shifted more from coding and design to more user experience? Well, no, the user experience didn't come till later. Actually, when I think back on it, we, we've kind of always done that. You know, user experience is what a designer used to do. Only the designers, what a designer was expected to do was a lot more. When I first started NextVerge for our clients, we had to not only do UX on the site and information architecture, but we had to then design it. We had to write most of the copy because nobody had uh, web producers or anybody to actually write anything. Mm -hmm. We had to be photo editors, right, or take photos to dress up the site. So we're used to doing all this stuff. But, of course, as the web has grown and matured, these niches have come out of that work where you now have front-end development, back-end development, UX, UI, IA work, um, user experience uh, research. You know, All of these different disciplines that have come out of what really we used to just call design. So technically, I think we've all, everybody in this industry has been doing user experience forever. But to particularly focus on it as a discipline um, didn't come up till I got to USA Today. And, and I had a team of, of other producers and developers and designers who could work with, uh, you know, could work with me on various projects. And I saw that as a niche that I was really good at. And uh, so I tackled it. So what's a typical day like for you at USA Today? Days normally starts uh, getting into the office about 730 a.m. And uh, that's preparing for our 8.30 a.m. news huddle. Uh, these are all of our national, all of our editors, actually, not just from USA Today, but around Gannett, which is a huge holding company of about 100 newspapers and TV stations. So we all have this one giant call, editorial call in the morning. So I'm there at the national news desk, part of that call. And my job is to figure out kind of what we're going to tackle for the day or to give status updates on the projects that we're currently working on so that the rest of our network can kind of look forward to any content coming out that they may want to feature or promote. So uh, the day starts there in that news meeting. And once that meeting is done, I do uh, about two hours of shepherding those projects, getting them assigned, doing some basic 
you know, UX and just, you know, wire, you know, uh, paper and pen prototyping if need be, along with my amazing boss, uh, Jeff Dionys, who's the VP of design at USA Today. He takes a very hands-on approach to his work as well. So we'll go around and make sure all the, all the work is in queue for the day. Then we spend the next couple of hours kind of reviewing any work that's already been done the previous day or any ongoing long-term projects, kind of check in with the people who are doing those projects and see how they're going. And then we tend to spend the afternoon either catching up with what was done earlier or preparing uh, to hand off to the evening producer who comes in and kind of takes over for me most evenings and uh, kind of letting them know where we are with most things. And that usually concludes my day. But, of course, that's assuming that no planes fall out of the sky right. and nothing else uh, crazy happens. Okay. All right. How do you keep motivated and inspired? Because you've been at USA Today now, what, for about five years? Yeah, yeah, almost six. Yeah. Wow. How do you sort of keep that motivation going? How do you? You know, I, this sounds crazy. We're actually interviewing some people right now for some junior UX positions, actually a lead and a few junior UX positions. And, you know, the thing that excites people who are in user experience design and design overall about working for a news organization, especially one like USA Today, is that it will never be the same from day to day. And I know plenty of very talented user experience professionals who are frustrated by doing A-B tests on the colors of buttons on shopping carts or trying to determine if a profile picture should be 40 pixels or 60 pixels wide. And that's the extent of the influence and work that they've been given usually to drive sales or to drive adoption of, of some startup program, which, you know, depending on if you believe in the mission of your organization can leave you feeling good or feeling a little bummed out about your contribution to uh, the success of that product. But in the news business, you really have a direct hand in how millions of people are going to view their world. So every day, every piece of content you touch, every project that you work on, you have some bearing as to how somebody is going to view some national conversation that's going on in the world. And so uh, for me, it's inspiring that you know, whatever happens, good or bad, whether it's 9-11, which I wasn't a journalist at the time, but I definitely am familiar with, whether it's 9-11 and you're, you know, called into work or whether it's, you know, Ellen DeGeneres doing a selfie that becomes the most retweeted one, you know, when you go to work, you will have some influence on that event and how that event is shaped. And it's a heavy responsibility, but it's also keeps you extremely excited and makes your work feel a level of importance that, frankly, I think a lot of people in UX design don't get to experience. So I love my job. I, I couldn't imagine doing anything other than news because it's of that of that differentiation every day and uh, the lack of monotony uh, in what I do. It sounds like maybe designers and maybe developers to an extent should Instead of trying to push towards Silicon Valley, maybe look at the newsroom because it sounds like the work that you do impacts so many more people on a more accessible level. It, you know, I, I think it, you know everyone knows uh, the hierarchy of needs that's been out there for a long time. And people say what people's needs really are after food and clothing and shelter. Wi-Fi. Um, and, and Wi-Fi, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and Adobe Suite and a MacBook Pro if you really get up there. <laughs> but after that, you know, people really care about, you know, some type of, you know, self-realization that what they're doing is actually contributing to the good of society. And at some point in all of our careers as professionals, we, we say, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty good at what I do. Now, what do I really want to spend the rest of my life actually doing? Mm -hmm. And I find that in journalism, you, you never have to really ask yourself those questions. 
uh, at least if you're with a journalistic organization that you believe in. And then we can certainly have a conversation about that. But if that's the case and you believe in that organization's mission and perspective, I think it's extraordinarily fulfilling. And, and I, I don't think Silicon Valley can really offer that. Yeah, also, and, and this came up, I think, a few weeks or so ago where they were talking about kind of this uh, this level of persistent ageism in Silicon Valley, how there mm. are people that are maybe like around our age, like, you mm-hmm. know, in or approaching our mid-30s are aging out because all the people that they're trying to bring in are younger, like in their late teens, early 20s. And sort of, you know, to what you mentioned about self-actualization, I think, you know, the older you get, the more you realize, like, you know, life is short. So you want to mm-hmm. make sure that the work that you're doing is important, that you're being validated for it, that you're not just like another code monkey or another I, set of hands, you know? Right. I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. It's It, it does happen in Silicon Valley. And frankly, uh, you know, if anyone here listening who's had that happen to them, trust us, your burgeoning gray hairs will be well-respected. Um, in, a, in a newsroom somewhere, <laughs> well respected. So, and there are a ton of those media properties. You know, with all the talk of all the organizations that are shrinking, and that USA Today has experienced its share of that, and uh, the, the journalism jobs that have been lost in, in the thousands, there are many more that are being created for people with the digital skill set that this podcast will reach. You know, people are looking for people who are interested in the media, interested in making a mark on the world, but that have the tools to be able to tell stories and unique and interesting ways. And when you really think about it, we're not that far removed from the time when, you know, if the Titanic were to sink today, we tell that story pretty much the same way we tell it, you know, a hundred years ago. We'd say, you know, the ship sank, we take a picture, we get first person accounts. The only thing that wasn't around then was video, but you know, that's still just getting first person accounts and reporting it. There's so much more you can do now with visual journalism and explanatory journalism and using interact, interactive storytelling to really put people at whatever perspective you need them to view a given piece of content. So if I want you to see the Titanic disaster from the God view, the, the big giant, how did we get here? How did this happen? When did the iceberg come in? Or if I want to tell you a very personal story about the captain and his life, and I want to do that in a way that's new and different, all of those are possibilities now. But yet, in order to accomplish that, we need people who have a digital skill set who knows how to apply CSS, HTML, JavaScript to to an interesting story. So I think we're, we're in for a real change, and, and anyone who's looking for a change in their career should really look towards uh, some of the new media organizations that are coming out. Now, do you think attending some of these conferences, like NABJ has Unity, ONA has an annual conference, do you think that designers, and, and I guess by proxy developers as well, would be welcome at conferences like this to try to meet people? Because it seems like they're mostly just news-oriented. Well, and you know what? I think that's just a uh, that's a facade, uh, and it's an unfortunate one that's been put up you know, by years of, uh, of the industry kind of trying to protect itself. You know, journalism is a unique profession because it's a very important. We call it the fourth estate. It's very important to our democracy. Yet at the same time, you don't have to be certified to be a journalist. You don't have to have a degree to be a journalist. Acts of journalism can be performed by anyone. So journalistic you know, entities, people who've been in the business for decades, have a, have a valued interest in making the business seem a little more complicated than it actually is. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, some people don't initially think of themselves as finding a place in that world because we've, we've made it a little too complex, I think. 
And now, not to say that anyone can do it. There's training that needs to be had. There's ethics that need to be understood. But right, right. Uh, I don't think it requires an undergraduate degree to understand those things. I think those things can easily I'll put it to you this way. It's easier for me to teach a coder how to be a journalist than to teach a journalist how to be a coder. And I take that mantra very seriously. And I think it's um, – and their perspectives too as well is, is usually young people or people who are eager to learn and very intellectually curious mm-hmm. are exactly what you want from people who want to be journalists. You want journalists asking why and how does this work and why should it work that way. So uh, yes, that is a problem. But I think that what modern web developers would find if they were to attend these conferences would be an audience desperately seeking people with their skill set. I literally heard a story recently of a young man who, out of college, was offered a very high salary, close to six figures, because he was a, a journalism major who had a computer science undergrad and had produced you know, some really interesting interactive experiences while he was in college. He had three media organizations fighting over him and ended up having uh, one. Uh, he landed almost a six-figure job, and they started paying him before he actually graduated school. Wow. So, I mean, the market is certainly there. And, you know, I don't – in fact, to address this, USA Today is going to real soon have a uh, – in June, have an, uh, an open house for all the media organizations in Washington. Probably when this podcast comes out, we'll be promoting this uh, event so that more more developers and coders and UX professionals can have kind of a window in to the media industry and let them know that they're welcome. Wow. I mean, who said journalism's dead? Right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, if, if there's if there's organizations that are willing to offer I mean that sounds like a draft deal. Yeah, they're that's paying, pretty much what before, it is. You know, you get out of school. That's wow, that's something. I mean, the need is really that significant because what you have is a series of editors, you know, some people maybe say you're in your forties. You were there for the invention of the web. You probably were an early adopter of of uh, writing content for online. You probably done some photo editing your day, some video editing. You probably know the basis of HTML and CSS and because of your technological skills, you probably progressed to maybe a managing editor by now. But now you're starting to see, as I and many people my age are starting to see, that our skills certainly haven't timed out. Mm-hmm. But what younger producers and developers and, and coders can do, of course, bl- completely blows away the things that we were doing at that age. And so you combine the experience with people who've been there for several years with people who know the technical possibilities in and out. And you really have a recipe from, for some dynamic work and that's not to say you have to be young to do that when i say young i mean young as a coder young as a designer not necessarily young as a person Mm -hmm. i've seen plenty of people completely change their careers and decide to become you know developers designers ux professionals and uh in fact i just hired one recently who was a was a studio art major who was a self-taught javascript expert and you know he gotten to the point where she was hosting meetups and you know really well respected in the javascript community and we just offered her a position here at usa today for that exact reason nice nice yeah with interesting because in the design and in the tech community there's always talk about specialization uh, Mm -hmm. or, or rather there's a dispute between whether you should be sort of a specialist that only does one thing or if you should be a jack of all trades that can do some design some development some ux it sounds like with journalism it skews heavily more towards being able to handle a number of different skills as opposed to just being a specialist? Well, I think that depends on the level that you want to go into. There are you know, a few tiers of journalism, right? There's the, there's the major news organizations, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN. There's the second tier. Some of those are startups like Al Jazeera America, The Guardian, which when I say startups, I mean startups in America, not mm-hmm. startup companies, and Bloomberg. And then you have the third tier, which are the Vox Medias and 
probably about four or five other politicos, a lot of other startups that only came into existence during the digital age. And it kind of depends on where you want to go, which one of those uh, areas you lean towards. Because on the lower end, a lot of those organizations are looking for generalists. You need to be able to work in the CMS, know a little bit of WordPress or a little bit of Drupal or maybe a little bit of Django. And then on the front end, they also may want you to crop some photos and, and put them out. And guess what? It would be really nice if you knew a little bit about SEO Mm-hmm. and could help with the headline writing. And it'd be really nice if you knew a little bit of information architecture so you could help with the website redesign. But on USA Today's level, we're highly specialized. I'm building out right now a team of, of UX professionals to just work on our content. We already have one, a specialized team in Gannett Digital that just works on our platforms. But we're going to be uh, a lot more specialized, and, and I think we'll only continue to do so as we go forward. So I think there's a home for you, whichever place you are in, a generalist or a more specialized person. But and I think this is true of corporate America. The, the further you go up in that chain, the more specialized a company becomes. All right. All right. Let's go back way, way back. Let's go back before <laughs> Alcorn State. Let's go back to Mississippi. Tell me how it was like growing up there. Tell me where oh, the city yeah. you grew up in again was. You said Port Gibson? Fort Gibson? Port Gibson, Mississippi. Port, Gibson. port yeah. Okay. I was literally, it was a port because I was literally born by the river. Was, <laughs> it wasn't It wasn't a little tent, but, <laughs> but I, was born, I was born by the river. Okay. And Port Gibson is a little small port city. One of the poorest counties in Mississippi, actually, right next door to Jefferson County, which is the poorest county where my father grew up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I grew up barefoot, running around and playing in the dirt. Literally grew up on a farm, my grandmother's farm. So I fed chickens and planted greens and, you know, did everything else that a good country boy does. And uh, had the good fortune of having Alcorn State University in our backyard. Uh, I was only literally a few miles down the road. So I always grew up with a college in eyeshot and earshot and saw, you know, black college students who look like me. Mm-hmm. So the idea of someone like me going to college and, and furthering my education was not something that seemed otherworldly uh, as it is, for, for unfortunately, for, for some people. So um, I had that, you know, always in view. But yeah, I was just a country kid, went to school. You know, was, I had a great young life on that farm. I think there's something special about seeing, you know, I'm a man of faith. I'm one of Jehovah's Witnesses. I think there's something spiritual and uplifting about seeing you plant something and seeing it grow and and seeing the value the warmth and the value you get from that you know you learn a lot about life how much you can't control and can't control when you see farm life so um so i loved it then when we were 10 we moved to the big city of of town the town of port gibson okay which was had two stoplights but that was the big city <laughs> and uh we were right down the street from piggly wiggly so that was the big thing i remember piggly uh, oh yeah country too yeah oh yeah so you know so you know what i'm talking <laughs> about so uh you know you can't get uh pig feet anywhere else like you can from a place like piggly wiggly in That's a jar right. but yeah so you know went to school in port gibson had a great education i really enjoyed it I had a father who constantly had a job from the time he was 16 to the day he died, worked very hard, blue collar man, mechanic, and then later on a uh, tech at a local, our local um, a power plant. Mm-hmm. And then a mother who went back to school to get her degree in business and became an accountant and, and then went on from there. So uh, in my young adult life, I had a very good, very good life, a strong, spiritually grounded family. Later in life, uh, we ran into difficulties as my parents split up and went through the whole divorce epidemic, which a lot of people our age went through, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And uh, so that caused some uh, some problems. But for the most part, I would say, you know, people disparage Mississippi. But thank God, for, we're, at least we're not Mississippi. 
mantra. I've heard a lot, and uh, <laughs> from, from my fellow uh, Alabamians and, and, yeah, and we Georgians. Say that. We say that. Yeah. Yeah, at least we're not Mississippi. That's at least we're not Mississippi. I mean, I understand. <laughs> I totally understand. But at the same time, I mean, it was really a great place to be, and and I never had any significant run-ins, you know, crazy experiences. My parents did uh, as they were growing up, but I didn't. And, um, you know, would, I would retire there to certain places if I had my choice. Okay. So, you, like you said, you grew up with Alcorn State kind of always in the background. So you always sort of had the decision that you were going to go to an HBCU? <sighs> not an HBCU, yes. And that's kind of, now that I look back on it, I think that was a little bit of where my lack of experience. I mean, Port Gibson is a town that's about 60% African-American, 40% Caucasian. However... The public school was 100% African American, and the private school was 100% Caucasian. That's, and that's so, how it was with me growing up too. Same. That's how it was for you growing up. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know what can happen, and what happened to me when you grow up that way is while you have a lot of confidence and pride, I was I was an honor student. You know, I was well respected by my teachers. I was always a pretty good kid. Never really got in trouble. I don't think I've ever been suspended in my life. But at the same time, I always felt like I was probably one of the better black students in school. Mm. I had no idea how I competed outside of my peer group, which Mm -hmm. happened to be all African-Americans from rural Mississippi like me. So growing up, you know, especially when I got in high school, that caused a lot of, you know, doubt because, you know, I don't want to go to, you know, an Ivy League school. I mean, that's like so far beyond my you know, a horizon of aspiration that, right, right. you know, I can't even begin to, to, to fathom that. So I never even thought about going to a majority school, not because I didn't think I'd get a good education, but because I would be around an experience that I had no familiarity with at all. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I did limit my choices when I was in high school to HBCUs, but I thought I'd be a Morehouse man. Ah. Yeah. We went on a trip when I was in uh, eighth grade, went out to Atlanta, saw Morehouse saw these young educated black men was very impressed and just thought like wow this is the kind of place i want to be but when i saw that tuition price hey uh, <laughs> hey i mean i mean i love you more house you know but uh you know if you can help a poor brother out you know that would have been a little better but so that is so while i applied there uh that didn't come to fruition i just simply couldn't afford it but i didn't want to go to Alcorn. i mean at, by the time i grew up although it was in the backyard I thought, you know, I don't want to go to school up the street. It's like 13th grade. Going, oh, yeah. Going yeah. To this school. That's okay. So, like, when I was in high school, the whole thing was there were a lot of schools in Alabama that you could go to. You could go to Auburn. You could go to University of Alabama. You could go to uh, University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa or in Birmingham or in Montgomery. But there were, you know, HBCUs too. You could go to Alabama State. You could go to Alabama A&M. And I didn't want to do that either because, like you said, it's like 13th grade. Like, you leave and there's all the people that you went to high school with. It's like... Exactly. This isn't a new experience in a way, you know? Absolutely. No, that's that's absolutely what, what I thought and felt and felt strongly about. And uh, But I did apply. It was like my default, you know, okay, you know, if I don't get anywhere else, I'll, I'll go to, to Alcorn. So I went out and I took my ACTs and compiled my GPAs, and when it all came back, the two universities that offered me full scholarships were Alcorn State University and Jackson State University, the two HBCUs Mm -hmm. in central Mississippi. So I literally, and this is terrible of me, but I literally had my best friend. We packed up our car. We were going to be roommates. We both applied and enrolled in both schools. And we packed up the car, getting ready for freshman orientation week, and I got in the car with him. He turned on the key, and I said, where are we going to college? 
And he said Alcorn, and that's why I chose Alcorn. Wow. <laughs> and it's terrible to admit, but I really, I saw so many, there were so many pros and cons. I did so many back of napkin calculations, spreadsheets even, <laughs> trying to figure out which school to go to. And it really was a pretty much a, I was getting the same thing at either place. They both had very distinct advantages. And uh, and at the end of the day, he chose Alcorn, so I chose Alcorn, and, and the rest was history. Wow. That's very impulsive. You just get in the car, you're like, where are we going to college? Where are we going to college? And I, I, left, I left the most important decision of my life up to a guy who, let's say, probably wasn't worthy of making that decision for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, yeah, it turned out well, and that turned out good. So it, uh, I it must have someone else smiling in my favor. Right. Did you have a lot of mentors when you were growing up that sort of helped you out in terms of, uh, I, I guess – to where you are now that you have a lot of people that really helped you out? Yeah, different stages of my life, I've had different types of mentors. As I mentioned, when I was young, when I was a teenager, my parents divorced, hugely traumatic for my family. So what I really needed and what a lot of young people need who are in similar situations is just a a big brother or a big sister, right? Like a surrogate parent who takes a real interest in them and, and, and continues to remind them that they're capable of doing whatever they so desire. So um, at that role in my life, I was fortunate to have good friends. Uh, my spiritual foundation as uh, one of Jehovah's Witnesses has been key. Uh, and I think whatever your uh, religion happens to be or, or not be, it's really important to have a very close-knit social circle. And uh, for me, I found that there. And it's a brotherhood that has paid dividends over and over and over again as I found myself at different stages of my life needing real support. I don't mean like, you know, that of boys. I mean like pick me up and take me to work and mm-hmm. <laughs> help, help me to, you know, figure out, you know, this application or what does it mean to pay your taxes? I mean, like real life stuff. Right. Um, I've stuff always they don't teach you in school, the stuff they don't teach you in school, you know, that's what I've needed help with. And uh, I've always had someone within that community that I could rely on. And uh, as I got a little bit older, um, I had a high school teacher, uh, Josie McLaurin, who was my English professor. She, she actually told me back then she thought I would end up in politics or journalism. She told me way back then in the, in the 10th grade, and, and she was right. I actually did both for a little while. <laughs> um, okay. But but uh, so I ended up there, and she was a, a great, you know, great, great teacher. She just really commanded the English language and, and taught us all, you know, that we convinced us that we could do so as well, which, you know, being from the country, being African-American and being from the country, there's a certain expectation that, mm-hmm. you know, you have to be able to code switch. You got to be able to speak mm-hmm. your language and you have to speak the language of job interview. I hear you. And so she was able to teach us effectively the language of job interview. And it's one that I that I remembered well and a lesson that I appreciated and that I took to heart. And that has benefited me with the pros and cons associated with that has has benefited me from their past. And uh, in college, I had a great, great professors and some that I still talk to to this day. One great professor that's helped me navigate the waters of corporate America, which I think is extraordinarily important because when you're not getting a promotion or when you need to have a critical decision to make that's not necessarily ethical, but just simply what's most advantageous for you in your career. Someone you can call on who's had a similar experience is critical. And uh, someone you could trust. And uh, I had a couple of professors that had been in corporate America for years and had come back to teach. And, and they were available to help me see through some of those challenges. And, and, and I owe them a great debt for that. What's some of the best advice that you've been given regarding what you do? Wow. Mm, that's a really good question. I think it wasn't direct advice, but I think what all the good advice comes back to 
since I've been involved in this thing we call design has been show empathy for the people that you're working for. And I mean, I don't mean your employers. I mean the users that you're designing for. Show empathy for their problems. Show empathy for where they are in their lives and, and show respect for the amount of time that your interaction with them through your products that you create is taking. And understand that if you can delight somebody's day or you can make something easier, then you've just saved them a frustration that might cause them to take one less drink or that might, you know, at the very least, you know, make it so that their day isn't any worse than it has to be. And when you really look at the fact that design is for people, I mean, we don't design for dogs, at least not in our business. (laughs) Um, When you look at designing for people, you know, and you have that sense of empathy and in your thought process, it really changes the way you view. You don't view projects in any avenue of design, even print design. You don't view projects as simple exercises where you where you're pulling elements off the shelf to see what fits you're thinking about a a fundamental problem that a real human is having and trying to solve that problem allows you to go outside the box and maybe come up with solutions that you wouldn't otherwise so i think the idea of being empathetic towards your audience is has been the best for me and especially is useful toward in ux design but in all aspects of design i think it's critical where do you see yourself in the next five years will you still be at USA Today, you think? Well, maybe. <laughs> I, it is the most exciting job that I've ever had. From a news standpoint, I couldn't imagine going anywhere else. Uh, I, I love the news organization. I love the way the company is investing in the organization. I do think, however, though, uh, you know, like a lot of people who've been in the business for a while, you kind of get bit by the startup bug mm-hmm. and the possibilities of what you could build on your own outside of a large institution. And um, I was really heavily contemplating getting involved in Google's new Me Accelerator. Um, okay, with uh, Angela yeah. Benton. With Angela Benton, yeah. I was seriously considering that uh, back before CNN did their documentary, and it was uh, still a, a little-known thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, my company, Gannett, came out with a really innovative program where they actually allow teams of coworkers to co- come up with uh, product ideas, and the company will invest in your idea and give you a portion of your time at the company to work on your idea. Oh, nice. And so it's a really great program. So I got involved with that and uh, the startup that I founded, which you won't find in any research online because we're still a bit in stealth mode in uh, stealth mode, but the company I founded, the company has invested over a hundred thousand dollars in. And so we're, we're in development right now with, uh, with IBM on a product that I hopefully will see the light in uh, the middle of this year. And, um, you know, depending on the reception of that product, um, that may be an area I go into or it may just be an area I hand off uh, to someone else in the company and just uh, go and found a new one. So, you know, the possibilities are there. You know, I'm always looking for the best opportunity for myself and to put me in the best position to spend time, you know, really doing things that I enjoy, you know, and then spending more time even with my family and friends. So, you know, I love journalism. I can't imagine going anywhere else, but I could very well be uh, doing something differently in five years. All right. What have been, I guess, so far some of the high points of your career? I know you mentioned Pointer and you mentioned the work that you've done with USA Today. Is there anything in particular that really stands out? I mean, you know, the news is so varied and, and, you know, I've had a lot of experiences dealing with a lot of different types of content and projects. There are a lot that I'm proud of. There's a lot of pieces. I think uh, I remember going to Silicon Valley for for a workshop. And, and explaining to the facilitator, uh, he, he, I told him I worked at USA Today. He wasn't extraordinarily familiar with our product, but I told him that I, I invented a reinvented 
well, I invented it and then I reinvented it later, a tool called the American Idol Meter or an experience called the American Idol Meter, okay. which uh, attempted to use an algorithm to judge who was going to win American Idol. And he, he knew what it was. He was like, oh, you invented that. And I was like, whoa, you, you know what that is? And he was super excited. He announced to the class, this is the guy who invented Idol Meter, you know. And I remember that feeling I had, like, you know, you forget sometimes when you're head down, plowing through the news, that the things you touch, they really do touch millions of people. So I'm, I'm always kind of taken aback or I'm in an airport and I see someone pick up a copy of USA Today and, you know, some piece of content that I did for the web or that my team built for the web that we repurposed for the paper is on the front page or there and I see someone spending time with it to try and understand something. Just those little moments uh, where I know I, I, I can see the output of my work affect people is the highlight of, of my career every time that it happens and, and, and whenever it happens, which isn't very often. You don't always get to see it, but when you do, it's very rewarding. Nice. So just to wrap things up, where can our audience find you online? The easiest place would be uh, on Twitter. I have a pretty active Twitter account. Also on Instagram, I have an open Instagram account. So feel free to follow me at any of those places. Uh, on Twitter, I am at Tori Hargrove, uh, H-A-R-G-R-O. On Instagram, I am, I think I'm Tori Hargrove there too. I think I just recently um, changed that uh, to being Tori Hargrove, but you should be able to find me there. And of course, uh, with all the work that we do, just you know, Google Tori Hargrove USA Today and uh, you'll see some of the work that me and my team has worked on. Awesome, man. Tori Hargrove, thanks so much for talking to us. This was a really, really good talk. It's For me, it's good because it's always good to empathize with someone else that sort of came from the country. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yes, sir. And, and, from and, the real bottom. Right. Came <laughs> from, from the geographic bottom. Exactly. Like came from the like came from the bottom and, and came up. So it was just really good to to hear your story, to learn about the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No problem, man. Anytime. Happy to do it again. And that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Tori Hargrove, and thanks to you for listening. The next time you visit USA Today and check out those infographics and visualizations and such, you can know that Tori is the man behind all of that. Uh, big thanks to our lovely and wonderful sponsors. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today and skyrocket your email marketing. While you're at it, click on over to AudibleTrial.com forward slash revision path for that free audiobook and 30-day free trial. You'll be glad you did. Revision Path is a 318 Media project. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and with the website, visit us at revisionpath.com forward slash donate and donate today. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.